One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Lainey Feingold, a preeminent lawyer in disability and civil rights. Lainey recently released the second edition of her critically acclaimed book, Structured Negotiation. This book has been described as thoughtful, a must-read, and a great tool for moving through obstacles in a collaborative fashion. During this conversation, Lainey also shares valuable insights on how technology can be used to strengthen accessibility, including with online dispute resolution, as well as why emotional intelligence is so vital to the legal profession. Okay, let's jump in. Lainey Feingold, you are a preeminent figure in civil rights and disability rights. Thank you so much for joining Convergence today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've done so much in this space with civil rights and disability rights. So actually, before we dive into the exciting things you're working on today, I actually wanted to go back a couple of years to when you were 14 years old. And I'm curious at this time in your life, how you were relating to the world and what some of your aspirations were and what issues you cared about. That is a good question. That was a long time ago. (laughs) You are speaking to me when I am 65. And so when I heard you were interested in that, I was thinking, and I also am very lucky to have my father alive and well at 88. So this morning I called him, I said, dad, someone wants to know what was I like at 14? What do you think? (laughs) And he told me two things. One was, he goes, you always marched to your own drummer. You were always an independent person. And he shared with me that on his desk, my dad still works. He has a poem that I wrote when I was 10. Wow. And it's framed. And he read it to me and sent a picture. And the poem was kind of about justice and being a person who had privilege to use 2021 language that was not the language of me as a 10 year old but you know it talked about poor people and that not everybody has everything that other people have and so I guess that tells me that even at 14 I had a idea of wanting to do good works in the world yeah. so yeah. yeah I mean I was 14 in 1970 mm-hmm. and I was in a middle-class family and my dad was a Republican until the late sixties, to be honest with you. So it's not like I came from any sort of radical space, but you know, in high school, I was really into independent education. I went to Hampshire college because it didn't have any grades. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that led to law school. And so I think, I think I always cared about, Justice. Justice, even though I wouldn't have put that label on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you were 14, where were you based in the world? I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh. Is about an hour from where you are at Harvard. Um, But in those days, I don't know if it was my family or how it was, 
it was an hour from Boston and we'd go maybe once a year. Yeah. So it was sort of a small town, very close community. I'm Jewish. I had a very strong yeah. Jewish upbringing and went to public schools the whole time. And, you know, it's funny what you remember. I can tell you right now, I knew nothing about disability rights, which is where mm. my life took me. We can get into that. But I was, you know, an early feminist. And mm. I remember wearing a black armband to school during the moratorium in 1969, which was a big thing. Yeah, I was, I had a good childhood. I was very yeah. lucky. That's beautiful. And when you're describing that, and I will just disclose that I'm an optimist. I'll just say that I'm an optimist. And part of me believes that children at that age naturally have some understanding of what is fair in the world, what is right. They're aware of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to a YouTube video and where there are a group of children and one child receives more food than the other child. And in this YouTube video, all of the other children are like, that's unfair. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, and, and part of me sometimes feels like with time, the pressures of life, frankly, and maybe even schooling, we could even say perhaps grades and needing to succeed maybe based off of external notions of success some of that can lead to us being more focused on outcomes and less interested in what's going on in the process that leads to something consequentialist basically and part of me feels like you being in a school that doesn't have grades allows some level of flexibility to just think about the issues not care about whether I'm successful based on outcomes and just, am I doing what I feel is fair or right or just in the world? And once again, you might've not have framed it <laughs> or said it in the, with using those words, but I can see some of the systems you put in place supporting greater flexibility and thinking. Yeah. You know, it's hard to look back and say, was I always a person, you know, my work is in collaboration and disability rights and, what led to that and are there that's why I loved your question about what were you like at 14 because I wasn't I wasn't an outsider and so I didn't have it from that perspective but I do think fairness is fairness is probably a word I use more I definitely wasn't talking about justice but then again something prompted me when I was 20 I went to college at Hampshire College for two years and only applied there. That was the only place I applied because I didn't want to go to a school with grades. So obviously that was, <laughs> that was a big thing and no SAT scores required. So now, That's you know, beautiful. 40, 40 years later, it's finally catching on. But, <laughs> and my aforementioned father, who has always been so supportive and the biggest fan, you know, he was expecting me to go to a different kind of school. And Hampshire college was only five years old at the time. I was a fifth class and wow. And I went there for two years and then I drove across country, not knowing anyone in Berkeley, California and moved here and stayed here. So obviously there are some threads yeah. that are through lines. Yeah. Um, Berkeley and, and the Bay Area are such beautiful places. Also, not just geographically with the natural beauty, but I also find that it is a place that has been at the forefront of 
social justice issues for decades, you know, and I can imagine going there and, and being immersed in all of the activism going on could have also helped in thinking about justice and fairness. Yeah, I was just thinking about that yesterday because the idea of replacing Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day is catching on. And yeah. most of the story said, well, some places like Berkeley, California, have done that for a long time. And I remember coming here and I think 91 was the year that Berkeley stopped celebrating that day as Columbus Day and it started celebrating it as Indigenous people. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's a good idea. You know, never thought of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it does feel there's a certain energy here. Of course, it's gotten so expensive that it's much harder for younger people to come. But Totally. Yeah. So, Lainey, I am actually just coming off of a truly breathtaking wedding uh, that was actually based in San Francisco. And during their vows, in addition to, you know, committing to one another, they also incorporated really powerful social justice statements about the importance of using love to champion social justice issues they cared about, focused on housing issues and workers' rights issues when they were saying how love can be used for social justice issues and their work, it really made me think about how this emotion can be so powerful, not just with humans, but also with like the type of things we do and how we do our work. And, and since you are a preeminent figure in disability and civil rights, I was actually just curious how love informs the work you do with the people you do it with? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there's a leader in the disability rights world named Alice Wong, who has a wonderful book called Disability Visibility. And I really commend that. It's a compendium of essays that she's gathered up from disability justice people. And she also has a project where the tagline is Access is Love. Mm. And she's got some swag around that. And, you know, I don't use the word love. I'm, I'm like a big, I was going to say I'm a big believer in love, of course. Um, <laughs> I don't really use it in my legal, in my legal space. Yeah. And in, in my book, which I know we'll talk about, I got comfortable saying out loud that, you know, kindness and empathy and just being nice are values that we can bring into the legal system. Yeah. And things like patience where, you know, everybody knows in every sphere of life, they want to be patient, but somehow they get into the legal system and all those things get thrown by the wayside. I guess I haven't evolved enough to really use love out loud in the work I do. So I'm glad you asked about that. And I'm going to be thinking about that. I actually think, you know, patience, kindness, empathy are potentially all somewhat interconnected with love. And it's love could include other aspects. And this is what I love about the work you're doing, and especially your book. When we're thinking about structured negotiations, in many ways, we are trying to find cooperative ways, non-adversarial ways of 
reaching agreements with people who we might have had non-cooperative relationships with. And patience, empathy, kindness, they're all really powerful in escaping this pitfall of competition and non-cooperation. I think so. And I think one of the problems in the legal space is you're, there's this underlying assumption that like, if you're passionate, you don't have those things. You know, if you're yeah. passionate, especially about civil rights. And, you know, someone once asked me in a talk, it was, I was in Canada and they said, well, how can you talk about patience when you're talking about civil rights? How can you be patient? And kindness, why are you going to be kind to people taking away civil rights? And to me, they're true emotions and feelings, but they're also strategies. Mm. And they're strategies to advance causes. And yeah. that has been my experience. But yeah, it takes a lot of unlearning, relearning to think of what some people call soft skills or some people call worse, you know, to think <laughs> that they can really be effective tools to be yeah. getting things done. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually strongly in your camp. When I think of civil rights issues, I actually think it's it's really it's more difficult to bring about change without understanding all of like the stakeholder emotions and feelings and arguments and it might be it might be that those arguments are things that like i or you or we are opposed to but at the same time understanding and being open to listen through different experiences can also be an opportunity to include more people in a movement, right? When potentially adversarial people realize that the issues can be solved through cooperation and that understanding each other doesn't mean that that we gloss over the issues. It's that it allowed understanding allows us to really appreciate the full context of a given problem. This all goes back to what I said earlier about me being an optimist. <laughs> like maybe I'm too optimistic about these issues. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I write about optimism in my book. I think yeah. and Hel Helen Keller said nothing yeah. is accomplished without hope and optimism. Mm. So I'm be a believer in optimism as kind of an approach, but again, as a strategy, because if you yeah. can't, if you can't have an expectation that it's going to work out, if you can't believe that it's going to work out, if you can't think there's a possibility of finding good in people that will yeah. bring about the changes that you need, it's, it's going to be rough. And I think that's a big reason, you know, in the legal profession, there's just so much stress and anxiety and, mental health issues. And part of it is people can't bring their full selves mm. and they have to check some of these core human values. Like you say, love or however you want to call it, you kind of have to check it at the door of being a lawyer. And that doesn't work. That's not yeah. sustainable. I agree. So we've, we've mentioned your book a couple of times, structured negotiation. The first edition came out in 2016 and it's only been a couple of years, but it's been such a valuable resource throughout the country in providing a roadmap for resolving conflict, really, and introducing the full complexity of how conflict can be managed and resolved. So you're now working on the second edition. How are things going there? Yes, yeah, somehow it's been five years since 2016. <laughs> and 
I wanted to put out a second edition. I wanted to keep the book alive and it will actually be available for people definitely by the end of October. The second edition will be available. Beautiful, beautiful. So I know that writing a book comes with many complexities and is not an easy process. Hopefully it is a fun process, (laughs) but between you know, the first edition, now the second edition, how was your experience in in writing structured negotiation? Well, you're right that it's not easy to write a book. (laughs) It was not easy for me. Let me just say it that way. And writing the second edition wasn't that easy either. Because I do, I have a website and I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of public speaking. So I'm kind of used to putting my voice out there, but there's something very different about putting it out in a book. I felt a weightiness to it. And each sentence, you can't do all those tangents about, well, what I really mean is this and don't take me wrong. And that reminds me of that. You have to just be really like focused and confident. But I was glad to do it because it gave me a chance to look back on the past five years and kind of distill what I've learned about the process from others now that the ideas are more widely out in the world and think about some of the amazing experiences I've had in the last five years. So I don't know if I'd call it fun, but I'm glad I did it. (laughs) I'm glad I did it. Yeah. And I guess between the first and second editions, what are some of the changes, substantive changes that have come into creation with the second edition? Yeah. So basically what I did with the second edition is I thought about cases that I've worked on and also how other people have used structured negotiation in the last five years. So there's a whole chapter, a new chapter on new cases that people have used. And probably the biggest kind of exciting for me thing to learn that there was a group of lawyers who, well, let me just back up for your audience that I've used structured negotiation for 25 years to resolve complex civil rights, disability claims without lawsuits. So we work with big companies on accessible technology, websites, healthcare issues, bringing people with disabilities together with big companies and working in collaboration. So I was very big in the first edition. I'm really pushing, you don't need a lawsuit. You don't need a lawsuit. Well, I learned from some of my readers that that's true. I mean, that's been my experience, but people have used the process feeling, yeah, we need a lawsuit, but it doesn't have to be so conflictual. So I have a couple new stories, especially in cases to improve jail and incarceration conditions for people with disabilities, where lawsuits were filed, but then the strategies in the book were brought into play to use collaboration in the context of the lawsuit. So that, I think, is very exciting because there's a lot of issues where people feel they need to have a lawsuit on file, either because of the relief they want or the client demands or the whatever reason people feel more comfortable with the lawsuit. So I did some interviews with lawyers who used it once a lawsuit was filed. Like, for example, instruction negotiations, one of the best parts of it for me is that the expertise of clients can play a role 
And in litigation, mm. everyone's stuck in their role. You know, plaintiffs are plaintiffs, defendants are defendants, experts are experts. But in the di- world of disability and technology, disabled people are very often experts in not just what they want, what they need, but what the solutions are. And structured negotiation allows for the kinds of conversation that brings out expertise. And these lawyers told me, yeah, we use that. We had joint experts. Our clients were able to give input, even though we had the lawsuit on file. So that's just one example of both what I learned and some of the new content in the book. Yeah, I I think that's really powerful because oftentimes in litigation, you will see where harmed parties are kind of just names on paper and you have expert witnesses come in to either supplant or undermine the perspective of one of the parties in a lawsuit. And having recognition that the clients themselves can provide substantive knowledge and inform how an agreement, a cooperative agreement is reached, I think is really powerful. And you're doing all of this still in the context of litigation, but there's still a recognition between all parties that we're going to provide for and recognize the experiences and the expertise of the parties involved in a case. Even though it's still litigation, I think that's a pretty important and valuable deviation from traditional litigation. Oh, definitely. And these lawyers in the stories, they they called it structured negotiation. I, I refer to it as like a, an oasis in the middle of a lawsuit, you know, <laughs> because one of the things that we do is when we start, since when you're not doing a lawsuit, what are the rules going to be? So we have ground rules that the parties negotiate together. So these lawyers negotiated ground rules, even though the lawsuit was filed on how they were going to handle the negotiations within the lawsuit. So, you know, it's fun as an author to see people take what you write and do something that you didn't expect. (laughs) Maybe the best thing that I learned is I I was asked to do a talk by a designer, young person in his 20s. And this was like a year ago. And I was busy. I didn't really want to do it. But he was so enthusiastic about the book. (laughs) <laughs> that I just had, I had to say yes. So he introduced me. It was a talk of designers working in the government space. And he said, Lini's book changed how I work. Now, this guy wasn't a lawyer. He didn't have a legal claim. And so afterwards, I asked him, like, what did you mean by that? And he sent me this big, long thing that actually I put in the book, the second edition, because I liked it so much. And it was all about how just reading the book gave him kind of a confidence not to be so combative and not to be so, I'll just read you a line of it because I really thought it was so beautiful. He goes, before reading the book, I felt the only way to get a point across to leadership was to focus on winning by means of individual merit as opposed to collaboration. That ultimately shaped the language I use and it also made me miserable. Reading your book changed that. And he goes on to say, I didn't feel I had to put people on the defensive. I could use positive language. The difference is incredible. Less drama. I don't go to sleep every night thinking about arguments I'll have to make in battle tomorrow. Things like that. And so that made me feel like, wow. And then there's a couple other examples from disability advocates who 
valued the strategies in the book for their own work outside the legal system. So that, you know, I have some stories like that. And then I also tried to place it in the context of the last five years, which, you know, the pandemic and the Trump administration. Um, I wrote a little bit about Black Lives Matter and how that made me think about some of the intersections that impact collaboration around race. So yeah, I tried to bring it into the present and share some more stories and circling back to what you said, kind of providing the optimism that I'm not here to say this is the end all be all for every kind of dispute, but it's really good to be able to think more broadly about tools that we all have. Yeah, yeah. And I really love that. And this is actually something I I, I shared your book with one of my peers at RSI at Resolution Systems Institute. And one thing that they mentioned is how what you're writing about isn't just for lawyers. It applies equally outside of the legal context. So when you were writing your book initially in 2016, the first edition, did you expect that people would be interpreting some of the guidance you were giving outside of a legal context? Not really, to be honest (laughs) with you. I mean, first of all, the American Bar Association published the book, and I had a wonderful mentor, Danny Bowling, who helped me with the book and shape it and frame it. And it was really shaped and framed for lawyers. Yeah. But, you know, the last chapter of the book is about what I call the structured negotiation mindset, where Mm -hmm. all these issues of empathy and patience come in. And another thing that happened in the last five years, I did a lot of talks and trainings about this process. And in doing those, it became clearer and clearer to me that that's really the ticket. The last chapter really probably should have been the first chapter. (laughs) Because if you don't have the right mindset, you cannot do this work. I'm not saying you have to, it has to be your personality. It has to be innate. No but it has to be something that you're willing to learn and practice. And I think that is why the book has resonance for non-lawyers, because those issues apply anytime you're trying to get anything done. Anytime you go into a meeting, being able to listen. And, you know, I write a lot about fear because Mm. I mean, one good thing about writing a book and looking over a 25 year portion of my career is you see themes that you don't necessarily see as they're happening. And one was people are afraid of things, many things. And that prevents agreements from being reached. And that causes claims to happen. And people have fears and they want those fears understood. Even as an advocate, we can say that fear makes no sense to me. Like, for example, I worked on prescription labels that talk for blind people. And originally, some of the pharmacists were very afraid to have talking labels because they thought maybe the label would be misunderstood when the blind person listened to it. Now, we, of course, thought that was ridiculous because without talking labels, you're giving someone a blank piece of paper. But it was a true fear. I came to believe it was a true fear of the pharmacist. And the only way to break down that fear is relationship and having pharmacists meet disabled people who 
we're stuck wrapping rubber bands around prescriptions and keeping them in different places to keep them straight. So all those kinds of breaking down fears and listening, that applies to a lot more than conflict resolution. So beautiful. I'm thinking of this book by Michio Kaku, who is, I believe he's an astrophysicist. It's called The Future of the Mind. And Michio Kaku is actually one of my favorite authors in in the science world. Uh, And he goes into the neuroscience of the brain. And when fear is triggered, the same neurological processes that are associated with listening are reduced. So when there's this trigger for fear, it's more difficult neurologically for people to try to listen, or at least to calm their nerves down in order to be like in a listening state. And so sometimes I, I think, and this maybe <laughs> is, is for me, because fear, fear is very widespread and it informs decision-making, it informs politics, it informs so many different aspects of our lives. And when we kind of focus on the root cause of whatever is triggering that fear, I think that allows for the decrease of fear, just talking it through, thinking it through, asking why, getting to the core of what's causing that fear can allow for more calm to come into the mind. And once that calm arrives, I think it's really easy, or I shouldn't say it's really easy. It's more possible to listen without concern for what my counterpart will be saying to me or that they would respond in a negative way. It's really just calming down and doing one's best to engage with curiosity, really patience and, and listen openly. And then the quote you read off earlier around gaining the confidence not to be so combative I find to be so beautiful because one, it's an anecdote from someone who has learned from you, essentially the benefits of doing that, but also it illustrates that it's possible, right? Like when we have the litigator's mindset of conflict, it's easy to create that as a habit and think that that is the norm that we have to operate in. But the anecdote that you just shared from one of your readers illustrates it's just a habit being conflict oriented is just a habit and it can be broken so that you can be confident in not being combative and being confident in being open and receptive to even what people who could be adversarial to you are saying. I think that's a really beautiful quote. These are skills that we can work on. Yeah. I mean, what you just said is in my experience, that when you give people the opportunity to behave in a different way, most people want it. You know, being in conflict is not that healthy. And I know so many lawyers are like, oh, I can't wait to retire. I just can't do this. It's like, I I was just on vacation. We're sitting like at a bar at a beach. And this lawyer's like, oh, thank God I got out of the profession. Because year (laughs) after year of having to put on that armor. One of the things that was so great about doing the talks between the first and second edition was people came up to me and said, this really speaks to who I am. Thanks for putting a name to it. Yeah. 
structure negotiation is one strand of the integrative law movement. Right. And people are doing this in, in all fields. And people want to know they're not just some outlier who does, didn't get the memo in law school, but, oh, yeah, this is another, <laughs> you know, this is another way to do it. And, and it works. So I, I also wanted to, you mentioned earlier around some of the folks and clients you've worked with have been focused on providing accessible technology for people with disabilities. And I actually wanted to zoom in on that because this podcast is kind of the convergence of technology and how it's informing legal systems. And maybe from your experience, could you talk about how technology is either complicating or benefiting or both opportunities for people accessing new systems uh, when they have disabilities? Well, let's start with podcasts. Yes. Um, so my work has been, I say, at the intersection of technology and disability and dispute resolution. And I think the pandemic has taught us all the importance of making sure we can all use the technology available to us. So in podcasts, for example, podcasts are great for people who can hear. Yeah. But if you can't hear, you can't get access to the podcast unless there is a transcript. So on that note, I just want to take a quick break and give an immense shout out to my colleague and friend, Tracy Blanchard, for all the work she does in creating transcripts for Convergence episodes. Transcripts to my episode can be found on the section of the HMCP website that is devoted to this podcast. All right, let's get back into it. So to make sure podcasts are accessible, there needs to be a transcript, which is not a difficult thing in, in, at all to do. Right. Um, there are actually starting to be this a lawsuit, in fact, against a big podcast provider because the disability community more and more is saying this is all possible. This is mm-hmm. all possible. One of the problems we have in the space right now is that people are all caught up in shiny solutions, I call them, AI solutions to accessibility. And there's been a lot of venture money going to uh, what they call overlays. And I invite your listeners, your readers, to look at the overlaystatement.com, which is a statement about these tools that don't solve problems for disabled people but in fact, create additional problems. So I think the problem, again, you and I are both optimists. That's why we're having so much fun in this conversation. It's not difficult to make things accessible, but again, it's kind of like mindset. You have yeah. to want to do it. You have to put the money behind to do it. And I think there's great promise and potential. And I believe it's going to keep getting better and better. I really like that example because... Podcasts are something where people can learn so much. Books are something where people can learn so much. And ebooks are something where people can learn so much. And it, these new avenues for communicating, collaborating opens up new possibilities. But the excitement or the shiny new technologies, as, as you described them, because they're so shiny, they can lead to this excitement and people all of a sudden are making steps while forgetting the implications of those steps and situating that in 
people being able to access the content is really important as, as new technologies are kind of being incorporated into old systems. I will share that um, I'm proud to share that, uh, that, that we produce transcripts for every podcast we produce. And, you know, I'm, I'm immensely grateful. Tracy Blanchard uh, has, has been really helping me with that. And sometimes in the podcasting world, there can be just so much excitement and opportunism to publish plenty of content without really appreciating people who are being excluded from accessing the, that content. So what you shared is really powerful. And I think it illustrates how technology can be both um, opening in terms of providing access, and it can also be exclusionary in terms of limiting people who can access the same amount of um, content. Yeah, I do a lot of talks on digital inclusion as a human right. Yeah. And I have a exactly what you just said. I have one slide that just has two pictures. One is a locked door yeah. and one is an open door because that's what it's about. And I think once we start, and again, what the law can do to issues in this space, we have a lot of lawsuits, we have some unethical players, and people start thinking about accessibility as some legal requirement, instead of putting people front and center, which a dispute resolution process like structured negotiation can do, you forget what it's about. And it just becomes a checklist or it becomes nothing. Whereas, and this is why it's so important to have disabled people involved in creating technology. And it's totally. very, it's very exciting that Josh Mealy, who is a friend of mine and a blind inventor who works for Amazon, just got a MacArthur Genius Award. Mm. And he is, you know, the expression couldn't happen to a nicer person. This is what I want to say about this award. And I was talking to Josh and it's of course a recognition of all the work that he has done on creating technology that works for blind people like himself, but it's also a real acknowledgement of the field, of the community, of the importance of designing and developing for people with disabilities and the leadership companies like Microsoft, many others, they understand, they have an expression designed for one, build for all, that knowing that you want to incorporate everyone, including people with disabilities, is a real innovator. And tying it back to dispute resolution, when you have a less formal structure, you can really kind of play on some of those ideas and not be limited in what relief is specifically required by the specific clients, but think bigger about it. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is why I think the system design mindset is so important. And oftentimes it's easy for people outside of this space to just focus on the majority and say, okay, we just like, those are the primary folks, the majority, whatever that is. But when we appreciate that making things more accessible doesn't, it doesn't conflict with the majority in any way. It just allows more people to access that same content. It can be pretty transformative. And obviously with system design thinking, we want to take 
all stakeholders into accounts, not just the majority of stakeholders. And, you know, with online dispute resolution, this is something that I, I, I did a lot of thinking about. We are providing new avenues for people to access the digital courthouse. And at the same time, the key stakeholders are everyone who is trying to have their day in court, <laughs> right? It's not just the parents who doesn't want to drive to court. It's everyone. Everyone needs to access the court systems and have access to justice, basically. And making sure that all of those voices are represented is, is really critical. So when you mentioned the accessibility to technology being a right, a fundamental right, when it comes to disability rights, I, I just think that's really something that's important yeah, and especially the access to justice issues and the online dispute resolution issues. I have written a piece a while ago on some of those issues. And, you know, it's not just access to the court by people who have the claims. It's, yeah. is the arbitrator deaf? Yeah. Is the mediator blind? What about the admin who's setting up the dashboard? And this is this is why the relationship thing is so important, because when you know people with disabilities, and you know them from all aspects of life, you realize, and this is why we say hiring disabled people is a key component to having accessible technology. Because when the person in the next cubicle over or the next Zoom window over can't hear, you're a lot less likely to put out a video without captions. Yeah. It's like anything else. And back to the fear conversation, people are afraid of disability. They think they don't know what to do. And so they don't do anything. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's all related. And just to agree with you on, it's not a zero sum. So if you make things accessible, people are always saying that, oh, I really like your website. It's so easy to get around. I'm like, yeah, my website is lflegal.com. It's designed to be accessible. <laughs> and we have a slogan essential for some, useful for all. And that's because when things are accessible, they're easier for everybody to use. I already told you I was 65 because you asked me how I felt when I was 14. So I can say that some people say in accessibility, we need to design for our future selves because at some point we're all going to need all this accessibility. Yeah. Some of us sooner than others. <laughs> yeah. What better way to promote empathy? Yeah. So we've talked about a bit about online dispute resolution, and we've spoken a bit about disability rights. And I wanted to focus in on the pandemic as it relates to those two pieces. So <laughs> I was just thinking about this the other day when I, when I came back from this wedding in San Francisco, I was thinking about how when the pandemic started, it was more about, you know, just making it through. It will come to an end soon enough. And then at some points, I think there's just been a collective experience of it's more about managing the pandemic rather than like waiting it out because of the duration of things. So we're now many months into the pandemic, what, 20 plus months or so into the pandemic. And my question is, in your work, how has the pandemic impacted and influenced your field with disability rights? Well, first of all, it's challenging just as a health issue, of course, for people with disabilities, many people with disabilities. It has driven home the point that 
first of all, people can work remotely and be effective. And remote work is something that people with disabilities, many have wanted, needed, and asked for for many years and been told, oh, that's not something we can do. Well, now we know it is. So it'll be very interesting to see as we go back whether people who need remote work are still going to be able to hold on to it. The technology side has really emphasized the importance of accessibility, especially around just COVID information. So just a couple of weeks ago, New York, the U.S. attorney in New York did a settlement with five different New York agencies around making sure vaccination sites are accessible and COVID information and all those sorts of things. And it brings up, I don't think we've mentioned that accessibility is such an essential component of privacy and privacy is such an essential component about accessibility. And health is a place we all understand. We have our right to our confidential health information, but if a website of a healthcare provider hasn't been designed with accessibility, the disabled person has to ask for help getting information. So I think the pandemic has kind of shown a light on the need for access, both for employees and for the general public. In my, in my second edition, I did, like I said, I tried to think about some of the themes that some of the realities of the last five years, of course, pandemics won. And I, I was thinking that a dispute resolution process that's flexible, like structured negotiation, is very good for a pandemic. Because, first of all, most of what I've always done has been over the telephone, easily switchable over to online meetings and as conferencing platforms and meeting platforms get to be more accessible like Zoom, like Teams, it's a very good way to build the relationships that have been essential to the process. So for example, I've had meetings during the pandemic with some of my blind clients who can share their screens and show a web developer, here's what happens when I'm on your site. And the developers, they love that kind of information, not just the developers, the policymakers, the designers, and they're seeing it firsthand. And it's a lot less expensive than bringing everybody together in a room. So yeah. that's been that's been another advantage in terms of the process. And a lot of what you just shared kind of relates to something you mentioned earlier about the importance of the relationships. And I find it beautiful, actually, because I've been doing this podcast since April and basically in every episode, something related to trust has come back and the formulations might be different, but the root of it is when engaging with multi-stakeholder, somewhat complex systems, that trust and the relationship between those stakeholders becomes way more important. And what you're highlighting now is when things can be potentially exclusionary, then the relationships are even more vital to a fruitful interaction with all the stakeholders. So I find that really interesting. And I guess going back to the impact of the pandemic, and I, I know you've, you've had some conversations with folks about this. Would you say that the work from home setting will be normalized post-pandemic and will be more accepted post-pandemic for communities with, with disabilities? 
I'd like to say yes. I know there is concern in the disability community that when people are required or encouraged to go back to work, the value to disabled people of being able to work remotely will be forgotten. Mm. And like I said, I mean, it really does come back to optimism, to trust. I mean, I have to trust. And, you know, I do some work with a nonprofit called Disability In, which is a business to business organization of Fortune 1000 companies committed to disability inclusion. And so I've really gotten to see firsthand that I'm not saying everything's perfect, but when companies have employees that they see value of and value from, they're going to want to keep them. And if keeping them means more remote work, then I think that's going to happen. I think this is a long haul thing. This is not, oh, the pandemic will be over next month, (laughs) as we all know. And (laughs) just just a second, what you said about trust, also critical. I had a quote in my first edition from a, one of the counterpart lawyers or, you know, would-be defense lawyers. And she gave me a quote, structure negotiations is a better way to do it. It's so cool, blah, blah, blah. And then a week later, she called me up and she goes, I need to change my quote. And I said, what's up? She goes, I need to add when all parties are trustworthy. Because if people aren't trustworthy, this process doesn't work. And yeah. it builds trust. And it needs a foundation of trust. It's kind of like you got to have trust right from the start. Yeah. And this is something that with the law school, with the negotiation workshop, something we we teach to our students is there is litigation and litigation is great when you don't trust your counterpart. You can just walk in, you have your counsel, they have their counsel, they say their arguments, maybe they, they do their best to represent the truth of the matter, but still there is reduced trust between the core parties there. And despite all of that, there's a lot of opportunities that are being missed. There are a lot of value added factors to an agreement that are being missed when there is no trust. And once that trust is there, the parties can just meet with one another and kind of brainstorm cooperatively and collaboratively and create so much more value. As the source of the quote mentioned, there has to be that trust for value to be created beyond a courthouse, beyond litigation. Yeah, I love speaking with people like yourself, because I didn't come from any sort of scholarly negotiations base. I just kind of fell into it. And it worked. So I kept doing it. And it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realized all these themes, like what you're talking about. And then it's so validating to hear that these are ideas that are accepted and taught. And I don't, I don't know if you know the book Soft Skills for the Effective Lawyer. I do. Yes. Yeah. I, that book came out after mine. I write about that in the second edition because it came out after mine and I met with the author. He's from the Bay Area, Randy Kaiser. And we just had such a great talk. And part of it was this thing I just said to you, that he's done all these studies. He's an academic. He's done tons of studies that show what I actually experienced, that being nice to people matters, (laughs) or having empathy, building trust, all these things that Mm -hmm. it's just a way that the academic and the scholarly and the practical just really come together. So I hope it gives 
encouragement to students and the next generation that this is really a legitimate way to be in the legal profession. What excites me as you're sharing that is what are the implications of all this? If the next generation of lawyers are all thinking about these skills, empathy, the, the value of listening, when, when they're thinking patience, kindness, when they're thinking about all of these skills and it is at the core of how they engage with being a lawyer, I get excited about how differently the legal profession will operate, like how better it will be. Let me just say that. How better it will be when for both disputants, better for all parties that are involved in the law, right? There's a great law review article that actually talks about how defense counsel and defendants often experience a schism (laughs) because their counsel can be just really, really adversarial and maybe not willing to even listen to their own needs, the defendant's own needs, but it is used to kind of this process, the streamlining of the process. And so there can be less of those soft skills (laughs) in the representation. And I get excited about defendants having counsel that are incredibly empathetic, incredibly patient, incredibly kind. And to me, I just think that the legal profession would be in a much better situation with those skills as core skills of being a lawyer. I agree with you. I tell a story in the second edition that happened where I was working with a big firm lawyer and I knew him for a long time and we had a good relationship, but something happened and he got mad and he started yelling on this phone call. And it doesn't usually happen in structured negotiation, you know, and when he was all done, he said, sorry for being bad, Mike, you know, and then he got back to the collaborative self of his and you know, there was an ABA study that came out that I have in the second edition about lawyer well-being, which I so agree with you, translates into effective lawyering for clients. And I think collaborative skills lead to well-being all around. So I share your excitement with how the profession can change. And, you know, along the last five years, I've met a lot of really committed law professors who are trying to do law different, you know, hashtag make law better and things like that. And I think if I can just contribute one little drop to that movement, I'll I'll be happy because I I do think it's like you said, it will make things a lot better. And I am in full support of that hashtag make law better. Um, So I have one final question for you. And this is, this is the ultimate question. The ultimate Uh-oh. question here. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so my final question is what you believe about the future, since we've already been talking about the future of it, what do you think about the future of technology and disability rights or technology disability rights and dispute resolution that very few people in your field believe? I'm, I'm pausing because... <laughs> I think a lot of people believe, I mean, there is a global community of digital accessibility 
advocates, disabled people. I mean, that's one of the things I love most about the work I do is sometimes I wake up in the morning and there's an email from someone in France, like, how can we get collaboration over here? And my book is being translated into Spanish. That's awesome. I know. I'm so excited about that by the Association of Collaborative Lawyers in Basque Country. I don't feel like I'm really alone in my ideas, either in digital inclusion or in the value of collaboration. I have to be honest with you. That's that's maybe not a good good answer to the question, but I I feel that the community, both those communities, which overlap in me personally and in others, are just so life-giving and enriching to me that I could never think, oh, I'm the only person who thinks like that. But I'll tell you one thing. Sometimes when I'm in a conversation with traditional civil rights or disability rights lawyers who are passionate and excellent at the litigation system, that's the only context in which I feel I'm an outlier here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that is kind of the only place where I feel... Because a lot of people feel, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't have your personality, whatever. And I'm like, it's not personality. It's skills. It's Mm -hmm. learnings. I have hope. I have optimism. And for example, I didn't know you before this podcast. And I feel completely (laughs) connected with you. We have (laughs) shared values. So why would I ever say that nobody else thinks like I think? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that is just the best way to end the conversation on the note of optimism and especially that it's a global movement that this optimism and that the skills that you are sharing with the world that it is global it's not just in the bay area (laughs) where people are beginning to recognize the importance of these skills it's it's everyone who's reading your book everyone who's reading your book in spanish too they're learning and and seeing just how valuable these skills can be, the mindset can be for resolving conflict. So with that, I just wanted to thank you so much. I've been, I I mentioned before the podcast, how I've been immersed in your ideas and your work for quite some time now. And it's been just such a pleasure getting to chat with you now. Well, I feel completely the same way. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. And I learned a lot talking with you. And I hope this is the beginning of many more 